Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Focus groups have long been an integral part of market research, but did you know they can play a crucial role in the world of law and litigation? Well, today we'll dive into how litigators can harness the power of focus groups to fine-tune their trial strategies, gain valuable insights, and ultimately enhance our chances of success in the courtroom. To discuss this topic, I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Ken Levinson, to the show. He's one of the founding partners of Levinson and Stefani in Chicago. He's a passionate advocate for truck and automobile crash survivors, and he has more than 30 years of experience litigating personal injury matters. He's also hosted hundreds of focus groups across the country and regularly consults with trial lawyers to help them discover and test issues that they may face during pre-litigation and at trial. Ken, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Dave. I sure appreciate it. Well, let's start from the very beginning. And can you explain what a focus group is and how it plays a role in trial preparation for uh, personal injury cases like the ones you work on? Sure. In its simplest form, a focus group is a test run of case-specific issues or things you're concerned about in an upcoming matter that you want to get input from non-lawyers who are not invested one way or the other in a case and just figure out what resonates and what doesn't, and learn some lessons before you enter the courtroom. So I think a lot of people have heard the concept of a mock jury. Is this kind of the same concept, or is this a little bit different? I look at it as very similar. Basically, we're getting some feedback in real time as to what resonates with regular non-lawyer people uh, who haven't had the fortune and misfortune of going to law school and being trained in in what we do for a living every day to figure out what they think is important in your case. Uh, I think a mock trial is a little more formal where you might bring in witnesses, whereas a focus group, you might limit it to specific issues in the case, or you might test specific things that concern you about the case, but very similar. Got it. And how did you uh, start kind of using focus groups? I, I mean, I understand kind of you have you have your personal injury practice and then you kind of do this consulting kind of on the side. How did you get into uh, the focus group process? Well, many years ago, I was working on a case with a co-counsel up in Wisconsin, and he asked me to help with a jury consultant who was running a focus group on one of his cases. And it was fascinating to me. And I just really love the process. I worked on a few other focus groups with consultants. And then we decided, you know what, let's do this on our own. It seems like we can do it. We have some knowledge on this and we'll experiment in our own cases. And little by little, I started doing them on my own cases and people in the community heard that I was doing some of my own work and asked me to do it on their cases. And word spread little by little that 
hey, we can learn something and help our clients by doing a focus group with, with the case. And one lawyer would refer me to someone else and they'd refer me to some another lawyer in the community or in town. And then before I knew it, I was getting calls randomly on a regular basis to help attorneys focus group their cases. And, and now it's a steady stream of consulting and helping attorneys in Chicago and throughout the country to focus group their cases. And it's really fascinating as to the process and how it works and, and really what we learned from people about uh, how to best present our case to a jury. Well, let's talk about uh, the process. Where do you find the folks that are part of your focus groups? Well, generally speaking, we outsource that to either staffing company or market research uh, firm that will essentially mirror to the best they can. It's never perfect, but mirror what we expect a jury in that jurisdiction to, to look like. Most of the time, I don't need the exact replica of a jury, but it, it's similar. And we've done cases in very rural parts of the country with a very small jury pool that, frankly, the county was too small to do a focus group because everyone knew about the case already. We went a couple counties over, all the way to downtown Chicago or other major metropolitan areas where it's easier to recruit. But a lot of times we'll outsource that to a, a company that specializes in getting a representative group of folks that, to the best we can, mirror the, the jurisdiction. And then how do those specific folks get chosen? Is that through like an interview process with your consultant or is, do they speak to you directly? How does, how does that work? Right. It's usually with the consultant and the interview process. And we try to make it as diverse as we can. We don't want a focus group, for instance, of only 25-year-old men or only women who are 60. We want to get a good mix. And that is for a variety of reasons, one of which is I'd like a diverse view of life experiences and maybe the case and what they bring to the table to help evaluate uh, the litigation we're, we're dealing with at the time. And it's, it's just fascinating how people look at things that are the same completely differently. And, and I'm curious, presumably when you come, walk into um, a, a jury trial as a personal injury plaintiff's attorney, you certainly may want a, a different jury selection than uh, the defendant might want. Yet it's kind of difficult to determine exactly who's going to get on that jury uh, when it, it's selected. So how do you go about kind of determining or, or do you uh, put into your analysis or your selection uh, the type of person you might want on a jury pool? Or is it just you're just trying to find a, the most diverse jury pool as possible? You mean at the actual trial, I assume. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, both sides want to win. The defense, my my friends on the other side want to get the jury they think is going to rule in their favor, most likely, and we do the same. So one of the ways we get the jury that would be most favorable and see the case the way we do, which is the best way to see the case the most honest and truthful way, is figuring out through a series of focus groups what resonates best with a certain type of juror. So if we've done a series of focus groups and done some research, analyzed the case, we might determine that a certain demographic might be the best for us. On this, by the same token, we might figure out a certain type of person, and it could be a variety of reasons. It doesn't have to be the obvious, which is socioeconomic 
race, gender, location, um, rural, non-rural jurors. It could be something very case-specific, and you figure out that juror would not resonate or be the best for this type of case, and vice versa. And that's through a lot of hard work, analysis, oftentimes a series of focus groups that we do in our cases. Got it. So that's interesting. So you actually use the focus groups to not only help you kind of define what your theories and and strategy might be at trial, but also to determine who the best jurors might be for your case. That's interesting. That's right. I mean, and sometimes it's counterintuitive. Oftentimes we'll focus group a case and going in thinking a certain type of person would be perfect for us as the plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, and then you realize, no, for whatever reason, that doesn't resonate with those type of people. And maybe the opposite type of person is more amenable to the case theory we have. It's it's oftentimes something that logically you wouldn't expect, but research, you got to go with what works and is tested over time and what the focus groups and other research is telling us about the case and best way to present it. Got it. Yeah, it reminds me of the, what's that baseball movie, Moneyball, where you're using kind of the data analytics to come up with the best roster of, of players. And sometimes that's kind of intuitive as well. Uh, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about kind of the process. So once you've uh, selected uh, the folks that are going to be in your focus group, what is kind of the next step in your process? It really depends what the lawyer who hires me to help consult is concerned about what they're looking for, what their pain points. And I always tell lawyers very simply, you know, what's keeping you up at night about this case? Like what scares you about proceeding with this case? What are you concerned about? Either legally, it could be a technical legal issue about causation or proving a standard of care violation or damage specific issue, or it could be something that's not what I call a legal issue. It could be the likability or unlikability of a party, or it could be a demographic issue. That's not something you necessarily learn in law school. So once I gather what the lawyers are concerned about in presenting their case to a jury, uh, we, we test it. And it also is dependent on what stage of the case we're at. So we do focus group work for firms that hire us even before the first deposition is taken. And I, I, I'm a big advocate of doing focus groups often and early because the worst thing that you can have is you try a case and you find out afterwards that the jury expected and really wanted certain evidence or certain type of expert or certain uh, information provided to them that you just didn't have at the time and you didn't maybe contemplate. And a focus group will tell you oftentimes, hey, here's an expert that you might want to hire and, and have analyzed the case that would resonate with folks and, and vice versa. So we do focus groups early and we tailor it to help develop a discovery plan all the way up until a focus group, maybe a month or two before trial, where it's a different goal, where instead of trying to find a discovery plan and what questions you might ask at a deposition based on a focus group, it's finding themes in the case best way to present your closing argument, best way to frame your case, sequence your case, and the best way to present your case at trial. Much different than an early focus group. So we do everything we can to tailor our process based on those factors and, and the attorney's needs, if that makes any sense, Dave. 
No, and that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you have many years of experience kind of doing these cases, and I'm sure that you're able to kind of provide insight and into um, some of the things that might work and not and, and be able to uh, help the attorneys kind of figure out what they might want from a focus group as well. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. And, and, and oftentimes someone will call me and I'll say, oh, you know, I've done 18 of cases and focus group work on exactly the issue you're dealing with. I mean, no case is precisely the same, but I can offer some insights based on the literally hundreds of focus groups we've conducted for trial lawyers throughout the country. And oftentimes that gives us an entree as to the best way to proceed. And so what are the ways that you are presenting this information to the uh, focus group panel? Are you bringing in potential witnesses? Are you showing them videotapes or pictures? Or is it simply the folks who are conducting the, the focus group who are just providing that inf- this information to the uh, panelists? Yeah, it's a variety of ways, Dave. I mean, it, it could be all the way from just providing a verbal summary using technology, maybe showing summaries of expert testimony, uh, maybe a doctor, engineer, architect up on a screen, all the way to video clips of actual deposition testimony to occasionally live witnesses. We've done a lot of work where we have people come into the focus group in real time, in, in person, give maybe a short direct examination or being directed to give some testimony. And then having a lawyer on the team cross-examine that witness and then having them step out and analyzing with the focus group's help how they came across and why. And just essentially, I want to find out two things. One, how did that person come across? Because a lot of times I'll have a witness or an expert and I'll think, oh, they're great or, you know, not as great. And I'm proven wrong. Uh, Maybe sometimes my opinion is solidified, but... Oftentimes it's surprising. So one, how do they come across? And when you meet someone, it's hard or almost impossible not to get a first impression, good, bad, or neutral, or otherwise. And the second thing is I want to find out about the substance of their testimony. In other words, above and beyond how they came across, what did you think that, about the actual testimony of the issues in the case? Did it make sense? Did it resonate? Logical, illogical? Did it jive with what your life experiences are? And it's a great way to figure out, you know, are you on the right path? Well, let's talk about getting feedback from the focus group members. How do you, how do you get that feedback? You know, I, I think I've seen two-way mirrors uh, being used in, in market research. Uh, what are the, some ways that you go about it hel- helping lawyers with these focus groups? That's a great question. There's a lot of different ways. I mean, sometimes it's an open discussion. My job when I'm consulting is to facilitate an honest, open dialogue. If I'm doing my job the right way, I'm creating a safe environment where people could be 100% honest, even if someone next to them disagrees 100% as to what they're saying. So sometimes it's an open discussion, and I have to set the tone and the framework early on in the process that we just want your honest feedback. There's no wrong answer. It's just your honest belief. So aside from an open dialogue, it could be uh, writing down answers to questions. And there's a benefit to that. Sometimes I'll ask some questions about the 
damage aspect of the case or the liability or a specific case issue. And I'll have people write down in some questionnaires in front of them that we prepare ahead of time the answers to questions. And this way, it's I feel there's a, a couple benefits. One is the lawyers who hire me get some data paperwork back with them. And the second benefit is it prevents the dynamic where someone who's less aggressive and maybe a little more introverted is not influenced by other people in the room who have a strong personality and say, oh, I believe X, Y, and Z. And then the less bold folks, if you will, might have a tendency to just agree with the more influential people in the group. Uh, But if they've written it down ahead of time, we capture that. And then we've done some experiments where we have surveys, real-time questionnaires throughout the focus group. So they literally will get a link and they'll fill them out in real time, and we get some good feedback that way. But there's a variety of ways. And sometimes you even look and you get some nonverbal input from focus group members, and you can tell what resonates and what doesn't just by their nonverbals, which sometimes it tells you everything. Yeah, and I am I was curious as to whether you've seen any, like, a lot of disagreement in a focus group. I know you've done a lot of these. Have you seen any sort of hotly contested um, issues where some focus group members didn't like a witness, but the other ones did? And how did you kind of figure out, how did that help uh, the case that you were working on? Yeah, sometimes it's very uh, interesting how the same set of facts presented to the same group of people, people, uh, oftentimes people have strong feelings back and forth and disagree with each other. Uh, A lot of it just has to do with their life experiences. Like, for instance, let's say you have a case where the uh, police department is being sued. For some folks, they just are much more willing to hold the police accountable in a case. And other people, maybe their life experiences, their family members, maybe they have a lot of friends who are in the police force. They just have such a strong belief about police, policing, and suing the police for arguably doing their job, that it's almost impossible for them to rule against the police department. So it's an interesting dynamic as to how to present that. And also, even if a person is predisposed to rule against your case, I'm always fascinated to find out where do we draw the line? Like, at what point can we move that needle the other way? I mean, sometimes it's nearly impossible, but sometimes there's a fact or two or one way to present the case that could move them the other direction. And that, to me, is one of the golden things you can find out in a focus group, how to, how to move the needle the other way. What are the, some of the challenges that, that have kind of come to you during some of these focus groups? Interested in, is there a particular uh, method that has been challenging or a particular situation that has, has challenged you uh, during your years of doing this? Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I, I guess one of the ch- inherent challenges is I find that when you test damages, let's say in, uh, in my world, a personal injury case, Intangible non-economic damages are much more difficult to test than certainly lost wages or or medical bills and out-of-pocket expenses. That's always a challenge. Uh, one of the w- ways we found around that is to figure out ways a jury would increase or decrease damages so we can present the case the best way. But uh, oftentimes a law, law firm will hire us and Let's say the mock jury gives or the folks who believes the case is worth $5 million. It's hard to tell the lawyers, well, you know, it's $5 million in this setting. 
but it's not real money. It's not in a real courtroom. Take that for what it is. It's, it's one research point versus the more important part is how they got there, like the methodology to get to that $5 million. And maybe what would increase that number and what would decrease it. That, to me, is, is much more useful than the actual number itself. And I wonder, as a practice point you know, for litigators, this is a podcast for litigators, and folks, I think, are really interested in hearing you know, what focus group folks, what uh, you know, mock jurors want to see from lawyers. So I wonder if generally, if you could provide some tips that you've heard over the years from uh, these focus group panelists, what they want to see, what they like from, uh, from their lawyers, what they don't like to see um, from lawyers at trial. I think what they like to see is authenticity and honesty. When trial lawyers walk into the courtroom, I think there's a predisposition that they're going to try to pull one over on the jury, that they're going to just be slick trial lawyers and they're going to try to fool them into ruling the way they want. Uh, I think what resonates is being honest and credible. And, you know, sometimes cases have some words on there's uh, no case goes to trial that's perfect from both sides owning up to it being honest and authentic and in terms of the presentation of the actual evidence and also your style what i find that lawyers do ineffectively if you will is when they're trying to be someone they're not they've heard someone give a closing argument of a lawyer they respect and they try to emulate them so much that they're really not speaking the way they normally would, and it just doesn't come across well. It doesn't come across as real and honest and authentic. I always recommend to trial lawyers, you're better off being somewhat less articulate and not using the magic perfect words, but being authentic and honest and believing in your cause, believing in your client and your case. That resonates and it's going to persuade much better than trying to be someone you're not using a style that doesn't resonate with you and not being completely candid with the jury. And I guess same question about uh, witnesses. Uh, what in general have you found out about what these focus group members want to see from witnesses who testify at trial? A couple things. I think one is how they handle the bad. Firstly, are they a completely different person in terms of their testimony, demeanor, language, everything else, nonverbals? when they're being directed by their lawyer or a friendly lawyer versus how they act in cross-examination. I think if there's a dramatic change, the jury or mock trial member would say, well, what, what are they trying to hide? Well, why is this a different person? And this, very similarly, how they handle bad facts. Do they admit it and own up to it and say, yep, my, yes, I was wrong when I said that. And now it's differently upon reflection or research or new information. Or are they just trying to be maybe too slick and, and explain away things that are not, are not explainable uh, versus just owning up to it? I think that's a mistake that witnesses try to make or try to you know, outsmart or, or just try to be too slick and just not give the honest answer. Because sometimes people make mistakes and own up to it. That resonates better and it's more credible and truthful than trying to cover it up and making excuses that are flimsy and don't resonate. Got it. 
So I know that you focus your practice on automobile and trucking cases, but I presume your focus group practice is kind of wider than that. Are there cases that are more amenable to a focus group process uh, than others, if you've seen that over the years? I think any case can be uh, any case can benefit from a good focus group, an honest focus group. We do a lot of medical negligence cases, a lot of issues with standard of care. A lot of truck cases uh, can benefit from focus groups. Any case, there's a video, uh, and you think, oh, I got it. there's a video. In a lot of our cases, truck cases, there's multiple videos of, of the incident, uh, of the crash. It's great to get to step back and get feedback from lawyer non-lawyers who have no interest in the, in the outcome of the case to figure out if you're on the right path. So I think any case can really benefit from it, but especially, I guess, Higher end cases, medical cases, product liability, bigger truck and auto crash cases can certainly benefit from focus group work. Is there like a monetary threshold that you typically see that kind of tips the scale into, okay, now we should start looking into uh, focus groups? I don't know if there's a magic number I have, but certainly in, in, in Cook County, there's a law division threshold. Any, t- any case really, six figures or more, seven figures certainly, I would consider a focus group. It'd be hard to justify a focus group when the case, the stakes are $20,000 or so, $30,000. Uh, it just might be cost prohibitive. But when we're looking at six figures and above, at least from a plaintiff's perspective, I think it's worth the investment because not only are you learning about the case, there's a good chance focus group grouping your case could give you lessons to make that, say, $200,000 case a $300,000 case or even more. Well, Ken, uh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Um, I wonder if you could tell us kind of the best place to find you on the internet or otherwise if folks wanted to reach out to you with additional questions. Sure. Uh, Our firm, Levinson Stefani Injury Lawyers, we're based in downtown Chicago. My email is ken at Levinson stefani.com reach out anything i can do to help you your practice uh any mentorship for young lawyers i love talking about what we do for a living and uh, trial lawyers other type of lawyers law practice anything i can do to be of help uh, reach out anytime excellent well thank you so much for being on the show ken thank you for having me i sure appreciate it and keep up the great work i love your podcast and all the great things you share with fellow attorneys and keep it up thank you so much Thanks to Ken Levinson for joining us. Before our tip segment, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, cloud computing, and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. Now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA Litigation Section's Mental Health and Wellness Task Force, and I'd like to welcome Pilar Kramen for her first tip on the podcast. Pilar is a partner in the Wilmington, Delaware office of Young, Conaway, Stargett, and Taylor LLP, where she focuses her practice on patent infringement, trade secret, and complex commercial litigation matters. Welcome to the show, Pilar. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I understand you're going to be discussing stress and self-care today, so what's your quick tip? You know, it'll come as no surprise to anybody listening today that the practice of law and litigation in particular is inherently stressful. But effectively handling that stress can literally change your life. 
And even just a few minutes a day or even a few seconds of self-care and mindfulness has the ability to keep your brain healthy, to reduce stress, help you connect with your clients, colleagues, families, enable you to concentrate better, solve problems more creatively and effectively, and basically enable you to respond in your and your client's best interest rather than impulsively react. So the best part of starting this journey um, on self-care and wellness, which I, I hope you will after listening today, is that it has a cumulative effect. Take just 30 seconds today to belly breathe, and you may feel a little more relaxed in, in a stressful moment, but more importantly, that single step can lead to the next step and the next that can lead you ultimately to a more fulfilling career, clarity to make better choices, and a more positive and collaborative work culture and stronger relationships in every facet of your life. So how do you take that first step? Well, the good news is you don't need a lot of time or money, frankly. When you do need to manage stress in the moment or you just have five minutes or less, you can do something as simple as taking several belly breaths and then just focus on your breath. If you're unsure what I mean um, by the, the concept of belly breathing, if you just put your hands on your head, um, which is a little pro tip, it forces you to belly breathe and just give it a try. 30 seconds is all it takes. Then take notice of how you feel physically. That's also something you can do in the moment. It can be as simple as closing your eyes, feeling the weight of your feet on the floor, um, just acknowledge how you're feeling, and then you just let that feeling go. Also, changing your perspective or your position can help in the moment. If you're standing, sit. If you're sitting, stand. Walk a few laps around your office. That can have uh, a great effect of just diffusing stress in, in the in the moment. Um, also, you know, I briefly talked about this centering yourself, feeling the weight of your body in the chair or your feet on the floor. That can also really help. Uh, calm your heart rate down, and just relax you in the moment. Another trick I like is to set an intention. When you start the day, you know, what energy do you need to make it through the day? Is it focus, calm? How will you remind yourself of that daily intention? So set the intention and then remind yourself and set a plan for reminding yourself of that intention. I like to use an essential oil diffuser. When I pick the, the scent for the day, I set an intention. And then that scent reminds me of that intention throughout the morning. Another way to use setting an intention to help is if you're walking into a specific situation, such as a meet and confer that you know is going to be contentious or some other negotiation, before walking into that meeting, take a moment and think about what your purpose is or what your client's goals are. And then how can you best meet those goals? What will serve that purpose? And then set reminders, you know, whether it's your watch vibrating, um, a rubber band, you can set reminders to help you refocus yourself on those goals. So those are just really quick tips in the moment. But when you have more time, even just 10 minutes, you can also incorporate self-care and mindfulness into your day. Uh, there's a lot of apps out there, um, even YouTube, where you can do a guided meditation for five minutes, 10 minutes. You can do a quick stretch or exercise. Again, there's a, plenty of apps out there, and, and YouTube is a great resource. Take a quick walk around the block. You know, jot down a few thoughts about how you're feeling or what you're grateful for. That can have a real impact. Call a friend. 
or sit down for five minutes and think about what you need in your practice. What is what is making you more stressed out than is necessary? So whether it's you need a bigger team, whether you need some technology help, maybe you just need time off, give it some thought and make a plan to make the ask. Ask for what you need. And then when, when you have even more time, like an hour or more or beyond, there's also some other things that you should consider. Starting a regular exercise regimen is a good one. Engaging a nutrition coach or a personal trainer. Learning more about emotional intelligence. Uh, trust me, you, you will not regret it. Emotional intelligence is an amazing thing that can be life-changing as well in and of itself. Get a massage. That's a, a favorite self-care trick of mine. Um, I, I get a massage every two weeks. Getting organized or decluttering your space can have a real impact on your mood, on your productivity. Another favorite of mine is engage a therapist or life coach, executive coach. Your brain is your most important tool as a lawyer. And so why would you not want to help make sure that you're, you're the most mentally healthy person you can be and a therapist can help you get there? Whether it's just dealing with a, a, a challenging partner or a case or a relationship in your personal life, and a therapist can help. Volunteering for a local nonprofit is also a great way to incorporate mindfulness into your life and self-care. The bottom line is that despite the unavoidable pressures and anxiety of our chosen profession, you are in control of how you feel. And just 30 seconds of deep breathing has shown to lower your heart rate and, and your blood pressure. 30 seconds. That's it. And so there is no reason to wait to normalize the notion of self-care in your life. If you start today to minimize that stress in your life there, there's, or the stress reactions in, in you and your life, it doesn't need to take time or money, but the payoff is immeasurable. Well, I love those tips, Pilar. Thank you so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. Connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. So to find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash litigate her, litigate H-E-R. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Obert, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>